How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did Synchronized Swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein, and I'm pleased to be joining conversation by Orville Vernon Burton, a distinguished professor of history at Clemson University. Today, we're discussing his book, The Age of Lincoln, A History. Professor Burton, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. So let me ask you the obvious question to any author of a book about Lincoln. We already have maybe 10,000 books on Abraham Lincoln. Why does the world need another book on Abraham Lincoln? And did you ever think about that when you were writing this book? I thought about it a lot. And uh, I think Lincoln will forever be a topic of interest and particularly of interpretation. It seems to me that everybody uh, seems to identify with Lincoln, no matter what their background or whatever area. Now, not all, but a lot do. And for me, as a white Southerner teaching at the University of Illinois, I saw a lot of what I argue, Southern characteristics in Lincoln. But I think the better story is one of my first dissertation committees that I sat on. Someone was doing a dissertation of a minor historical character who had run against Lincoln. And so he was asked to explain why this was important. He said there'd never been a biography of him. And I had a colleague named Fred Jerry, who was quite a wit, And Fred said to him, do you ever ask yourself why there are so many biographies of Lincoln and why there are none of this particular historical event? Maybe Lincoln is important enough, particularly as to who we are as a country and our identity as Americans to study Lincoln. Okay, so let me try to ask you, I'd say the 10 or so most important questions in time we have available that I think relate to Lincoln and what Lincoln uh, stands for. The obvious question at the beginning is, why did Lincoln wait so long to free the slaves? The Emancipation Proclamation was not issued until January 1 of 1863. The Civil War had already been going on for about two years. Why did he wait so long? And do you think had he not issued an Emancipation Proclamation, the North would have been able to win the war? Two distinct and very good questions. Uh, I think it it is a little bit backwards, though. If you think about it, it's a pretty quick turnaround from someone who thought there was no authority from the Constitution for him to end slavery, though he personally always objected to slavery, but could see no way through the Constitution to do it. If you look at it in those terms, it's very quick. And people misread the Greeley letter all the time, I think, in which Lincoln says that if he could save the Union by not freeing anyone, he would or free them all. But it was his primary purpose is to save the Union. And that, I think, is the backbone of understanding the Civil War and how Lincoln moved 
toward the Emancipation Proclamation. Lincoln really meant it when he said that the United States was the last best hope in, in the world. And it came from his own experience in the United States that he grows up and he works hard and he makes something of himself. And he believed that. He believed that sincerely as part of why he objected to slavery, that people should be able to be rewarded for their meritocracy, how far they could go, whatever their ability was, and be rewarded accordingly. And we think of how the Civil War ended with the United States winning. But the Confederacy actually was much more in line with the rest of the world at that time. There had been the American Revolution and the French Revolution, and then you had republics in Mexico and everywhere else. But by 1860, when you think about it, you had had Napoleon, Napoleon III. Uh, I love the, the, the musical Les Miserables. That's the 1833 failed revolution. All the major countries were going the other way. Even Garibaldi, who was the hero of two continents, who comes back and reunites Italy, thinks Italy is going to be a republic or a democracy, and what happens? It becomes a monarchy. Maximilian is put on the throne in Mexico, which had been a republic by France. So the world is moving not unlike we have seen fairly recently toward more authoritarian, hierarchical society again. So this is why Lincoln focused on saving the Union, which he thought was the only way. Now, he did it, I think, eventually, the Emancipation Proclamation, because he had always hated slavery, but also he knew that it was a way to win the war, that with the manpower there and the force on it. And remember, he had already decided on emancipating the slaves. He had told people, he had a letter doing it when he wrote the Greeley letter. So the question is, why did Lincoln write that letter. And I think it was always as Lincoln, the ultimate politician. He was, in fact, getting the United States, the populace, ready to move where he was, just as he was at the end of his life, moving toward getting them prepared for Black citizenship. So I think that he moved fairly quickly, uh, which was, I think, really done well in the Lincoln movie, that part of it, why his commitment to the 13th Amendment, knowing that the Emancipation Proclamation was just a wartime measure. And I think that really shows his commitment as he moved and learned. And one of the things I love about Lincoln is education. As he met people like the great Robert Smalls or Frederick Douglass or Sojourner Truth, he really moved on race relations toward a better place and was certainly trying to move the country that way. And the Emancipation Proclamation has to be seen only in that context, I think. Okay. So Lincoln uh, did issue the Emancipation Proclamation. And as you point out, the movie Lincoln is really focused on just a few pages of Doris Kearns Goodwin's book. And it's about the approval by the uh, Congress of the 13th Amendment. But Lincoln did not believe, did he, that blacks and whites could live together as equals. I thought he was an early proponent of colonization, which meant blacks would leave the country. And even after the Emancipation Proclamation was issued, he met with black leaders in the White House and said, maybe you should move out of the country. Why did he want them to move out of the country? I'm not sure that he really did in the end. I think he saw the problem of race, the race problems we still see today. And he knew it was difficult. 
But we forget that there were many African-American leaders who were pro-colonizations to go other places. And of course, Lincoln did try it and he sent a group. And then when they were unhappy, he brought them back at government expense. So I think we look backwards at colonization as this bad thing. But I think at the time, Lincoln was exploring every option that he could. And there's no doubt he was worried about how black people would be treated by whites. But I really believe you have to look at the arc of his life and his beliefs. And you can see in letters that he wrote and other things, his commitment, particularly the famous letter when he had it read at Springfield very slowly about how black people who had fought for this country were entitled to their rights, including the right to vote. I think that shows the extraordinary movement when his best friend told him that he would lose Kentucky if he did not revoke the Emancipation Proclamation. He stood firm on it because that commitment once made, he stuck by it. So I think that Lincoln has gotten a bad rap on the idea of colonization. He certainly believed in it. He was a member of the society. But as he moved forward and learned from African-Americans, I think he adjusted his thinking and certainly how he felt uh, the place of black people in America. So it is said that uh, after the 13th Amendment was passed by the Congress, Lincoln was asked to make some remarks, and he did at the White House. And uh, John Wilkes Booth was in the audience listening. And it is said, I don't know if it's true, you could tell us, that Lincoln said, well, maybe some educated blacks would be allowed to vote in certain parts of the country. That so infuriated John Wilkes Booth, it is said, that he decided to kill Lincoln. Is there any truth to that? Yes, the, uh, the story is uh, validated. And what John Wilkes Booth said is he's calling for black he didn't use the word black people, but citizenship. And he understood very well what Lincoln was saying. It was not just the educated, but those who had fought for the Union, he thought were entitled to vote. You can go back in Lincoln's thinking earlier. A lot of people took it as a joke. He said that women who fought for the country should be able to vote. But he had this belief, if you had fought for the country, you should be able to. And I think he was trying to move people that way. So you have to put Lincoln, I think, in the long line of martyrs who have died for people who were struggling for the franchise. Lincoln uh, loved to go to theaters. And in Washington, D.C., there was no government theater. So entrepreneurs would build the theaters, and the most famous of which was Mr. Ford, who built Ford's Theater. And so Lincoln liked to go there. And the night of the fatal assassination, Lincoln invites General Grant and his wife to accompany him to see uh, our American cousin, I believe the show was. Why did Grant not go? And had Grant gone with the military that he kind of surrounded himself with, would not not have been enough to protect Lincoln from the assassination? It's one of those contingency stories that historians love to deal with. And of course, there is the idea that uh, Ms. Grant did not uh, appreciate Ms. Lincoln, who could be difficult, particularly after she had lost her children, tragically. And, you know, there was a guard there who stepped away. So we don't know what would have happened. What I, I do know, I think an even more important contingency story is that Lincoln had actually wanted to be at Fort Sumter. He was invited there. And if he had been there, like with the second inaugural, where there was protection everywhere, where they had sharpshooters on top of the buildings protecting 
uh, Lincoln. And that's when, in fact, John Wilkes Booth had uh, said he was so close to him, he could have reached out and touched him at the second inaugural, but he was protected. If he had gone to Fort Sumter, he would have been protected. In fact, he would have been with the great Civil War hero, the formerly enslaved Robert Smalls on the ship, the planter, to have put the American flag back up. So I actually believe that he would have been safe in South Carolina at Fort Sumter in Charleston because they would have been prepared, as you were suggesting, if Grant had been there instead, he was talked out of going, said it's too dangerous to go there. Okay. So let's suppose Lincoln had lived and he had not been assassinated. Do you think Reconstruction would have worked more successfully? Or in the end, what happened in Reconstruction as it fell apart under Andrew Johnson, uh, do you think it would have been better under Lincoln? I have no doubt about that. Of course, we are historians, so we look at the past. So you have to be careful uh, predicting what would have happened. But Lincoln was committed to anything. He was committed to the rule of law and the violence and the uh, terrorist attacks upon black rights and black people and their supporters. There's one thing we know that Lincoln would not have allowed to happen. And by this time, he was no longer, quote, the gorilla from Illinois, but he had become beloved Father Abraham. He had all that cachet behind him that he didn't have at the beginning, so loved the troops are dedicated to him and America is, is loving him in ways that I think uh, we, we think about it, uh, a second term or a third term, that there were not the rules put in for just two terms that Lincoln could have carried the kind of weight that was needed, that is, Grant has been underrated. He did a much better job than people have given him credit for, but I think he did not have that kind of either political skills that Lincoln does, who was a superb politician, people miss that, as well as his commitments that he thought that he had made both to himself and to God, as he said, in terms of if this war was won. So the turning point of the war uh, was often said to be the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, where there were 130,000 troops, 50,000 casualties, and it is said that had Lee been able to prevail on the third day, or even if there had been a fourth day of the battle in July of 1863, that um, the North would have had to settle for some kind of compromise. In other words, the North would not have felt that they were going to win the war so surely if Lee had been able to prevail at Gettysburg. Do you subscribe to that view that the North would have had to compromise and maybe there would have been a different outcome at Gettysburg going differently? Uh, no, and I say this because Lincoln actually thought he was going to lose that second term. But as long as Lincoln was president, he was not going to surrender, I don't think, particularly after the Emancipation Proclamation and his commitment there. What happens, of course, is the Battle of Atlanta, I think, is, is really the turning point because I believe McClellan, at least Lincoln did, who was as I said, a superb politician. He was early social scientist, counting up votes and things, even when he ran on local offices where it would need to be and how to win. He assumed that he was going to lose because the, the North was war weary, even that late in the campaign, until Joe Johnston was relieved by Jefferson Davis and replaced with Hood at which point Sherman was able to go in and take Atlanta and move down to Savannah. And that was, it seems to me, the, the biggest turning point because 
as Lincoln said, McClellan would either sue for peace on the Confederate terms or bring the Confederacy back into the Union, which Lincoln never recognized that they left, of course. Okay. So let me ask you about uh, the inaugural address of Lincoln. The first inaugural address, he's in effect says he supports slavery. President Buchanan, his predecessor, had supported, in effect, uh, a constitutional amendment that would have reaffirmed slavery. And in his inaugural address, Lincoln says, I agree with that. So uh, is it a surprise to people that Lincoln, who was seen as being unfavorably inclined against the slavery, didn't like slavery, that he would support that constitutional amendment? Why did he want to do that? Well, he, he did it reluctantly. But as he said, he would do anything to save the Union. It was that important to him. But more than that, the irony is the 13th Amendment would have guaranteed slavery in perpetuity where it existed. Where Lincoln says he drew the line was you would not expand slavery. So he was still against slavery expanding the United States, but said that South Carolina, Georgia, North Carolina, Virginia, where it was, that it would not be touched. Now, Lincoln also, the shrewd politician, figured that with uh, political appointments, things like that, he had great faith in what would call the yeoman, non-planner class. Some say falsely uh, that he was wrong about their non-commitment to slavery. We'll never know because he defined the war about union, not about slavery. It becomes about slavery over the time and a process, but it was always about union. And so since he did not define that war about slavery, we don't know if people who were not enslavers or owned slaves would have fought as opposed to fighting against the Union, as Lincoln put it, this is Southerners. So that is my take on this 13th Amendment. He still got the line firm that slavery will not expand. And we forget that the Confederacy had views of expanding slavery and building a slave empire down to Mexico, out west, and other places. When we talk about the sort of worldview of the movement of hierarchical and authoritarian societies replacing or coming back where democracies had been. Okay. Let me ask you about Lincoln's education. He doesn't get any formal education, doesn't go to law school, though he's a lawyer. I think his education went maybe through the second grade, if that. How did he learn how to be such a really talented writer? The Gettysburg Address, the Second Inaugural Address, among other things, are classics that still live with us. Where did he get that literary skill? Well, it's an irony. He he once wrote his partner of all things that he studied John C. Calhoun's writings. I would say he was a much better writer than John C. Calhoun. But he deliberately wanted to address people could understand him. You might remember Frederick Douglass had thought he was not a good writer because he didn't use fancy words. And some of the people who he was with would say to him, you know, this is too simple. He said, well, you understand what I'm trying to say, but I want everyone to understand what I'm saying. He grew up, as you said, he had less than a year's formal education. It also shows the power. I mean, I think Lincoln is the poster child for education, his belief in education, his commitment to education. Uh, in the first time he runs for office, he says how important education is. He understood it was important for a democracy to have education. And he had one of these minds. You know, he taught himself Euclid geometry just to keep his mind sharp. I forget the exact number. I believe it was over 400 books during this raging civil war that he is reading 
in the Library of Congress. He becomes actually quite a good military, or at least understood military tactics and strategy by reading military history. But he had this inquisitive kind of mind and he had this drive to succeed. He wanted to make something of himself and that he understood he could do through education. And that was his commitment. And, and I love it that, you know, it's under the Lincoln administration that we get the land grant school act, this sort of commitment to education that goes along with democracy, which, you know, Lincoln and others call farmers colleges, people's colleges. But I love the term that was used when it was called democracy's colleges. And I think that's a term we need to call for all public education. It is a way that you understand democracy so that it can survive and thrive. In the Gettysburg Address, uh, Lincoln begins with a sentence that is maybe one of the two most famous sentences in the English language. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. But the country really wasn't started with the proposition that all men are created equal. Gary Wills, in his book about that speech, says that it was a bit of sleight of hand by Lincoln to kind of say, we're fighting to make sure all men are created equal. Weren't people in the North upset with that sentence? Because many of the soldiers say, we're not fighting for, for the slaves, we're fighting to keep the Union together. Can you explain that sentence and what Lincoln meant by it? You know, I think Lincoln's new birth of freedom is, is uh, along with the second novel, are probably the two greatest, uh, if they aren't poems, at least part of them, they're certainly some of the, the greatest speeches any president has ever written. But what Lincoln is going back to is a Declaration of Independence, where Jefferson, who is an enslaver himself, writes those words that uh, liberty, all men are created equal. And I think the greatness of Lincoln, which begins there with this new birth of freedom, is to take our mission statement, which is a Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal, and takes that literal translation and puts it into our Constitution, which is our rule book. So I think that's the way I understand that. And I think people heard what they wanted to hear. So I think many people, including those in the South, would not have heard that uh, Black people were included. Certainly that's what Roger Tony had said in the Dred Scott decision that upset Lincoln so badly and sort of helped bring him back into politics to argue otherwise. But that liberty was the basis of Lincoln's belief in the greatness of the United States, that liberty gave the ability of all people to achieve as far as their ability would take them. And he had different ideas of how people could go and things like that. But it was based upon this idea of liberty that he truly believed in. And he went back to Jefferson, who was seen as sort of the father of the Democratic Party. But Lincoln was taking it from the Whig to the Republican Party, that very idea. And I, I think that while Lincoln says the Emancipation Proclamation is the thing that he would be remembered for, I think the true great thing he did is literally introduce this idea of liberty and equality into the Constitution and change that liberty from a negative liberty in the Constitution, where, in fact, the states had all the control. The federal government did not. And with the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendment, uh, this sort of a, the second Constitution or, or the second founding, as Eric Foner would call it, 
puts positive liberty that the federal government ensures that people have these rights, even in the states that the states say they do not. Now, under our Constitution, the president of the United States is the commander in chief. Lincoln had modest military background. Do you think he was not really equipped to be the commander in chief and he stayed with relatively weak generals for so long? Why did he stay with people like McClellan for such a long time? People were often disrespectful to, to Lincoln. Why didn't he just go out and get somebody like Grant early on and win the war a lot sooner? Well, Grant wasn't really there early on. And of course, uh, as today, it's by reputation. McClellan was seen as a little Napoleon. He was supposedly a genius. He was supposedly the best military commander. And it took Lincoln a while. But as I said, Lincoln believed in education. The more he read, the more he saw, the more he saw the need to get a general who could win the war. So uh, it's, it's like today. I mean, the other big question is why Andrew Johnson as his vice president? Well, the reputations are what Lincoln was going on and other people, of course, advising as well. You might remember that he supposedly went to Robert E. Lee, who was uh, the other person who was seen like McClellan as the, the great military strategist, hoping that he would take Union forces. So talk about uh, Mrs. Lincoln for a while. She's gotten a bad reputation, maybe unfairly so, for being difficult to deal with. As you pointed out earlier, two of her children died. So obviously that's a tragic thing that can affect anybody's personality. But did Lincoln have to spend a lot of time keeping her calm and dealing with her? Or was she basically leaving him alone to do what he wanted to do? No, I think they were really a team, and uh, I am sympathetic to her. I think as much as I love Lincoln, I think he's the greatest president, one of the greatest uh, people that I have ever studied. I think he would have been difficult to live with. There are these stories about her, you know, trying to get his attention, and he's reading and uh, things like that. But Lincoln, actually, I've often thought the relationship with Mary sort of helps explain his initial reaction in the Civil War in a strange way. He would just grab the boys, put them on his shoulders and walk out of the house when she was having a fit or screaming at him and move away, let her calm down and then come back. And I think he sort of thought maybe the Confederacy would do the same thing. That is the, the slaveholding South. But it it did not. But she I think they were such a team. She pushed him in terms of ambition. And I think one of the key ways of seeing how Lincoln really appreciated Mary and relied on Mary, is that when he learns that he's been elected, the first thing he does is run with the telegram back, yelling to Mary, we are elected, showing that they were a team. She really brought out and brought some sophistication to this backwoods frontiersman, I argue, of a non-slave-holding, white Southern yeoman heritage. Uh, she really worked to cultivate him in ways that made him more presentable to people. And I think they were a good team. It's unfortunate that Mary, you know, she did some things that were certainly uh, embarrassing to him at times, but he, I, I'm convinced he loved her dearly and appreciated her. Now, some scholars have said that Lincoln had what's called Marfan syndrome, which is to say he was unusually long and wouldn't have lived that long because Marfan syndrome, M-A-R-F-A-N-S, I think it's spelled, is something that can shorten your life. Is there any evidence that he actually had this? And is there any real need to go back and figure it out? You know, I don't think so. My argument is that how could he be so strong? You know, Marfan's 
it usually affects that. But he was always showing off his strength, holding the axe out by the handle. If you've ever tried to do that, I used to as a kid because I'd read all these little Lincoln biographies and holding it up to his uh, shoulder. There's the famous story when he's, you know, fairly old in the White House and these fellows are struggling to move a, something and Lincoln walks by and grabs it with one hand and moves it. He was a great wrestler, strong. He was fast. He was a fast runner. You know, I cannot diagnose right. the Mark fans, but think about how long it took for him to die with a bullet in his skull. That shows something about his strength, I believe, as well. And it goes back to what I said earlier. What I've discovered is everybody, or at least a lot of people, read Lincoln into them. All denominations claim Lincoln that he was, you know, Baptist, Presbyterian, whatever. People who have different uh, sexual orientations or their own different, they will read that into Lincoln. So it's something I think I could be wrong on this, but my speculation is that that's something that people have read into Lincoln who might have the same the same issues. Well, you mentioned sexual orientation. There was a book that came out a few years ago that suggested that Lincoln was actually uh, gay. He lived with, I think, Joshua Speed in the same bed. They shared the same bed for four years or so. How do you describe that situation? Yeah, I think, again, it's, it's looking for identity there. And uh, Lincoln was sentimental. Joshua Speed was his best friend. That's who had written him to say, you'd better take the emancipation back because uh, or not do it because Kentucky will leave the Union. But it was very common. Even when I was growing up in the South, you know, boys and girls separately, girls in the bed, boys often slept together at the military academies. They did the same thing. And so we're sort of reading backwards, I think, into it, both the sentimentality of the age. You know, I have no problem if he was, but I do think it's once again someone who has come to appreciate Lincoln and are reading themselves into Lincoln is the way that I interpret it. Okay. A final question for you. Let's suppose uh, you had a chance to interview Abraham Lincoln yourself and you had one question you could ask him. What's the one question you'd want to ask Abraham Lincoln? Well, that is tough. There's so many, but I would say why Andrew Johnson as vice president candidate. Okay. So uh, we've had a discussion with uh, Professor uh, Burton of Clemson University on his book, The Age of Lincoln. Um, it's a very good book. I highly recommend it. Uh, we've just given you a bit of an appetizer here in this conversation. So those of you who want to learn more about Lincoln and that whole period of time, please take a look at this book. Thank you very much, Professor Burton. Thank you. I really enjoyed your questions. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.